brief fundraising announcement. As you may or may not know, edX Global is a completely nonprofit organization that is run by volunteers. 100% of our donations go to student-led projects around the world, and it would help us tremendously if you donated even as little as $5. If you are in the spirit of giving during this holiday season, please send us a donation through PayPal or Venmo to edxglobalinc at gmail.com, spelled E-D-A-C-T-S- G-L-O-B-A-L-I-N-C at gmail.com. You can be provided with a tax-exempt ID number after your donation by requesting through the same email address. Thank you in advance for your donation, and happy holidays. We are also holding a popcorn fundraiser through Double Good. To order where your proceeds go to edX Global, use the website https colon backslash backslash popup dot double good dot com slash s slash o v i l o g and again thank you for your support hello you are listening to the Carrero podcast I am Malia Hoffman and I'm here with Fred Ramirez all right everyone today we have a unique guest her name is Christina Zanato she's a professional diver since 1994 Christina is an ocean and cave explorer a shark behaviorist photographer, speaker, writer, and conservationist. Christina believes in the power of education and uses her writing and speaking to empower women, inspire younger generations, and teach about conservation. Christina is a member of the Explorers Club, the Women Divers Hall of Fame, and Ocean Artists Society. She is also the founder of the nonprofit People of the Water. All right, Christina, thank you so much for being with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in scuba diving? Well, thing, first of all, thank you for having me today. Uh, scuba diving has been a child dream of mine. I grew up in a family of the ocean, but I primarily grew up with a, a dad that was a former military, scuba diver military. Oh, cool. So these beautiful albums of black and white pictures of my dad in this, what was back then, very advanced technology, pure oxygen, rebreathers. And then I grew up with the stories of what you would see on the water. And so I grew up with this idea that one day, obviously, um, being daddy's little girl, I would also be an underwater uh, scuba diver. My dream was to be an underwater scuba ranger that would go around the world uh, telling people what to do and what not to do on the reef. And I would have sharks for friends. And also, because it was my job, my mom would not have the power to tell me to come out of the water when my lips were purple. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. I like your uh, your rationale for that. <laughs> it it was per- made perfect sense at age eight, mm-hmm. you know. And obviously, yeah. back then you don't have physiology understanding that you can live <laughs> on the water for eight to ten hours a day because <laughs> indeed you become hypothermic. But to me, it made just absolutely fascinating. If I'm a, I'm a water scuba ranger, I don't have to come out of the water. Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh! So so. With your with your father, who is who is in the military, and, and for me that just opens up a whole different realm of questions. Um, just because I'm a, I kind of like the history of history of scuba diving, and and one of my probably my biggest idol growing up was of course Jacques Cousteau, um, you know, and so oh, that's your that's your dad. Mm-hmm. That is a wonderful photo. Um, so yeah, and, and I, I know we could go down that rabbit hole and, and that would be one of the, one of the things that I would like to talk to later on. Um, so what, what kind of got you, um, interested in, in just the, in, in, in keep on going with your, with your, with your scuba certifications to where you are now? Well, uh, so the there was a huge gap between the the childhood dream and the moment that I became a scuba diver. 
uh, I tur I basically was 22 years old and I had to wait with the right combination of enough finances and enough time to go and take the course. At the time I was working in the hotel industry mm. and uh, we're talking about the early 90s and the, the hotel industry we worked in shifts and if you wanted to learn to scuba dive but back then I was in Italy in Italy itself, you have to be at the pool twice per week at this time for this many hours, which obviously my job did not allow me to do. So one day I started researching and I found out for that they actually existed the scuba diving tourism, the one that you travel to a destination and do your entire course while you're on the location. And that's what I did. And so I walked inside a travel agency, I had some destinations in mind none of which was available. It ended up being the Bahamas, of which I'd never heard, and I landed on this island. <laughs> and here I learned how to scuba dive, and uh, it was like, well, what's next? And they're like, well, you go home and work for another six months or a year, and on your next vacation, you do more scuba diving. And that is when it didn't sit well with me. I was like, well, no, I can actually work here thanks to my five languages and my hotel wow. background and grow my scuba dive. So mm -hmm. the project was to be here for a year, work at the hotel that I was actually staying at, <laughs> and for a year, basically scuba dive and get scuba diving out of my system. Then the, it evolved within two or three months into, wow, this is really cool. I could actually work in all the hotels of the world, you know, all those islands that are, are in the world, and scuba dive on the side which then within eight months turned into, well, I'm just going to become a scuba diving professional and I will travel, which then turned into, well, here I really have everything that I love, the sharks, the caves, and I just kept growing into what I do here on the same island. So 27 years later, wow. I'm in the same location when I learned how to scuba dive, still doing what I love. What other locations were you traveling to when you were exploring your love for scuba diving? Well, at first, I never traveled to them. I had a list. I wanted to try Maldives, mm -hmm. Seychelles, uh, Mauritius. Uh, this because we're more uh, Red Sea destinations are uh, more approachable from the Italian side. That's yeah. where I resided. Uh, but, and that's what I thought I could do. Well, you know, I work in the hotel. Well, I can work in a resort in the Bahamas, like I can work in a resort in the Maldives and then go diving on the side when you're not working. Um, the decision to stay here was as I evolved into the work with sharks primarily and then into the discovery of caves is I realized that a combination of this kind was rare anywhere else. And so the full immersion mm. into what I call my day-to-day -day exploration was available on my doorsteps and mm -hmm. so I didn't yeah. find them anymore the need to go and seek other places to go and live. I've been in other places looking for other people that work with sharks, learning about different caves, also taking courses that maybe are not available on the island because there was no instructors that lived here at the levels at which I wanted to reach but I always came back here because this island became my exploration ground. So then how, how did you be, become, in, become involved in education and conservation? It was the, I th there's a Baba Diom in 1968 that said something a very, very uh, fundamental. It's one of the quotes, you know, we will protect only what we love. We will love only what we're understanding. We understand only what we're taught. And, and it's uh, the quote by which I go, the three words I use in my life, which is exploration, education, conservation. So you explore for yourself. You explore the knowledge of the new, but also you explore the knowledge of, of the old, maybe with new eyes. And once you do that, education, in my, in my opinion, comes natural, right? You have questions. Yeah. What did I see today? Why did this do this? And why did that happen? And why, why, why? And because, because, because. And then you fall in love with this. This is all fueled by love. Well, when you want to love someone, when you love someone or something, you want to protect them. So conservation is a direct uh, response. You explore, and at first maybe it's extremely selfish, right? I want to be the diver. I want to be with the sharks. I want to be a cave diver. It's about me, me, me. But then you say, well, I really love this place, so I'm going to learn a lot about them. 
And as you learn, you also learn the plight of these places. There is this risk, there is this danger, there is this issue. And then the more you learn, the more you can connect, right? I call the interconnectivity of water. It took me years, but caves are fundamental in the, the conservation of sharks. <laughs> protecting caves protect sharks, protecting sharks protect caves. So dealing with plastic pollution protect both. And so then conservation becomes, I think, a, a natural link. Because if you don't protect what you love, then it's not going to be there for yourself, but also for all the other people that you want to share with. Yeah, you, you know what, that, those, those three words really resonate well. Uh, because I'm just, I'm just thinking both as a, as a professional diver, but then, but then also as a, as with my background in um, education. Um, a lot of, a lot of, a, a lot of teachers' passions are kids, and you know, and and but when we first get started, it's always about well, I want to teach, I want to teach math, I want to teach history, but then as we as we start to go go forward we understand that i want to teach kids history i want to teach our nation history um and so and but but at, at the same time i also want to make sure i do i do everything within my history classes in order to promote all of our kids to be what who they want to be um and so those i really like those three words i i've i've, I've never really thought about um, pinning them all, all with one, with with one one another, um, which 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 probably goes on to you know kind of one some of our next questions. Um, tell us about your work of of being a uh, of being a person that wants to inspire um, others, um, not you know um, not just kids in general but women you know how how was how did and 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 it always seems kind of like a weird type of question um you know because in fact for for myself i was talking to some people yesterday and they're like wow you're you're such an advocate for x and i said it's just we're an advocate for everyone um it's it you know it just so happens that i'm focused here so Tell us about what 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 you've been doing. Well, and, and again, that is an, a, an evolution. When I started doing what I was doing, I never thought, uh, well, I'm going to do this to be an advocate for. I Correct. did it because I, I follow a personal uh, passion and a personal interest is with the feedback, like the one that you receive. Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's just so inspirational to see, for example, a woman doing this. And it never made sense until people start coming back and say, this is so important for other people to see. And so advocacy came later, I guess, with more maturity, but even with more reflection, but primarily with feedback. And so I do do things just as advocacy, but I do things hoping that people will be inspired by what I do. And so just recently, as or recently, I would say the last few years, being more into that educational part of saying, hey, look, this is a possible, this is accessible, this is open. And uh, it became important in hindsight. I didn't realize, uh, I think about it. I remember sometimes I would be the only woman on a boat of 20 people, no matter if it was crew or divers. Mm-hmm. I remember that if I dock the boat, the people on board will applaud. If my colleague will dock the boat, everybody's like, thank you, man. See you later. And get off the boat. <laughs> Interesting like, wow, observation. The boat. <laughs> it was just oh, like, gosh, it's impressive. You didn't dock. <laughs> so there was quite a lot of that. It's just at the time I didn't notice, I actually kind of like, I guess brushed it off for maybe unfortunately because of my generation, it was just so ingrained into me mm-hmm. yeah. and so then with time i decided this like no it should not be ingrained into me it should not be acceptable yeah. it should not be present and so that's where the advocacy came into saying you you need to do what you want to do not what people tell you that you can or cannot do based on and you can fill in the blanks yeah 
could be gender, could be even a skin color, could be culture, could be all of that. And so that's where the advocacy comes in. For me, it goes further. For years, I suffered of the uh, comment of, well, when are you going to stop playing with sharks and get a real job? (laughs) The real job. I mean, just like I endless times listening to that or the other one as a woman was, well, when are you going to settle down? Mm -hmm. To which after, you know, 20 years on the same island, doing the same job, owning my own apartment, Mm -hmm. you feel like saying, how much more settled do you want me? (laughs) I haven't troubled since 1994 when I settled here. But in their mind, it's not that question. The question is, when are you going to get married and have kids? Mm -hmm. Correct which is nothing wrong with it. I don't see anything wrong. If that is your colleague, by all means, but it's not mine, please don't put me in that box. Yeah. So then advocacy becomes, it's like, if you want to live a childless life, it's okay. It doesn't make you selfish. It doesn't make you different. It makes you who you are. My kids, hundreds of them, hundreds of them, they would have not received the attention they have received if I had kids of my own at home in yeah. needing of feeding, diapers, schooling, attention. Because I didn't have my own kids, I found time to have young kids hosting, sleeping on my couch, <laughs> learning for free, staying with me for two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. And bonus there were actually kids that were very interested in scuba diving because your own kids is not said that they're going to follow your footsteps mm-hmm. so my kids are my students out there yeah my kids are the bahamian kids as i call them mm-hmm. to this day even if they're in the mid-30s that i train into the art of scuba diving yeah that i spend time saying this is this is what we do this is how we work and then they go and do their own thing so that's for me became advocacy. It's saying, you know, follow, follow your dream, follow your heart, stand yeah, your right. own ground and don't accept to be put in a box. You've said that your dad inspired you to um, become a scuba diver and, you know, helped you follow that passion. Was he a big advocate for women doing whatever they choose to do? Or was that something that you kind of just <laughs> told them, I'm going to do this and you're going to help me? My dad, um, my dad was an Italian man born in 1938. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And we're to make assumptions also, about that. <laughs> well, there is that. You yeah. have you when you're 20, you fight it. When you're 49, like I am, and having lost my dad a year and a half ago, you go like, well, no, that is part of that uh, acceptance, right? The mm-hmm. flexibility. He was also a man whose military training in scuba diving was brutal. The stories I've heard, the, the things that they used, the machine, the machine was there to kill them. Whoa. So in his early stage, um, he considered scuba diving extremely dangerous and definitely not a sport for women. Mm. So I had, that's the reason I had to wait for that particular time where I had time and money because mm-hmm. I had to self-do it. Once I became involved, he became very enamored with what I was doing. So he visited with my mom. He recertified as a recreational diver. He still struggled with the other part, which was, in his mind, I had thrown away, wasted, that was the word he would use, my education. Mm. It took 2004 from 1994, so a decade. It took him a decade to actually, during one of his visits, saying, I didn't see it before, I see it now. Mm, I see what you carved for yourself. I see the path that you're trying to follow. I see it. So was he supportive? In a way, yes. We fought. A lot when I was visiting those few times in the far in between, between the Bahamas and Italy, because he had a hard time saying, I love you and I worry. So instead of saying, I love you and I worry, he will just become upset. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but at the same time, he never said, stop doing that. Mm. And the best advice that I received then, and I still carry with me now, was 
when I left, he said, remember, he says, this is your home. He says, keep enough money in your bank account to buy the fastest ticket you can back here, whatever there is an issue. Hmm. The door will never be closed. So he had, I think, internal conflicts based on his culture, this Italian man of 1938, so not, not a very young generation, right. uh, with his very hard military background, with the certain things about women that were expected within, and a daughter that said, no, did, uh, did you see that box and that lid? I'm actually pushing it out and stepping out of the box. Mm-hmm. And so for a while, it was just kind of like, well, the box is empty, now what? <laughs> and, and then with time, he realized, he realized that I didn't need it to sit in that box. And, and, and this, is, this is not a discussion. This is just a part of this. My dad was the kind of guy that came home, excellent provider, amazing provider. But he will sit down at the table. And my mom and I will set the table up, put dinner down. And my dad never helped in household chores. So mm. we have all that background, the cultural background to, yeah. to consider. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, and um, the the, the fact is, he changed, right? He his mind changed yeah. over time, and that's that's a lot. That takes a lot. So, and ten years could be quick by some standards. <laughs> ten years is very fast. Yeah. Ten years is very mm-hmm. fast. It's a quick turnover. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, I was basically uh, thirty four, and the fact that he actually voiced it, it was not just a change of heart. It was an admission of saying, I did not see it. Mm-hmm. Now I do. I, I think that was, you know, incredibly supportive. And at the end of the day, it was still, like I said, supportive because he never once said, stop doing what you're doing and come home. Yeah. He never said, oh, if you go and do that, the door is closed or mm-hmm. something. That's so. good. You're also a member of the Women's Diver Hall of Fame, which is quite an honor. Um, can you tell us how you were elected and, and when? I was uh, elected in uh, 2011. I was approached by um, a few women that came over. Um, I was at DEMA, which is a dive show. So I was sitting at the booth of the dive operation I was working with. And these women walk up to me and I said, oh, we heard about you. We just want to know about you. And I honestly didn't really know much. So I told them what I was doing. And so they said, well, you we have a week time. You need to put your application in. And hmm. <laughs> I actually came back home from Dima, put in the application. I was inducted. The uh, base reasons were the, I would say, the educational part, uh, primarily all the Bahamian local education that I've been doing through the years at the uh, high school level, all the way through dive masters and instructor. And then the educational part related with shark and shark conservation, especially the fact that I was one of the people that, work for protecting sharks in the Bahamas. And uh, those were the two ones connected with them, you know, the cave work and the cave exploration. But I think the key part was like the outreach that I have obtained and the educational basically campaigns towards shark conservation that I have, that I have done. It's amazing. Yeah. And if, if you could, um, if you could parallel that uh, with, with with what you were just saying, first of all, that's an amazing honor. Um, you know, uh, you know that that doesn't come lightly. Um, can you think about your your own educational experiences and and parallel that to your you're a person in power, um, and and if and if you were given an opportunity to actually influence primary and secondary education what what changes would you wish to see if any well provided that i am not a teacher so i'm not very familiar with the educational system so i don't want to make uneducated comments on how it's done but i think as an scuba diving educator uh, one of the things i've realized is uh, perhaps one of the the changes that would would be is to make the things that we study have almost like a goal. And you said, you know, like when you start teaching, uh, teachers want to teach math and math, one of them, or history. People are like, oh, God, why do I have to learn history? 
so boring. I mean, <laughs> it takes a, a art to teach history. Mm -hmm. Some teachers can be extremely boring. I was fortunate to have one of the most amazing history teachers that really opened up to me to the love of history, literature, and art. The same as math. People sit there and say, well, why, why am I doing all this math? I, I, don't, I don't understand. Right. So as a linguist, as somebody that studied quite a lot of literature and all of that, uh, I did study math. Math came easy to me. I was lucky. But I was just like, well, I don't see myself using math. This is till I became a, a technical diver. And now the sudden physics came into play. And I realized that the bridge between me and going technical diving was really, really grasping the concept of physics. And then obviously math became, you know, very good part because there's quite a lot of equations and things like that but I actually in, drowned myself in physics because they were the bridge between me and what I wanted to reach so I don't know how to do it but if when when kids learn if they learn like why in in the primary and secondary grade we're so eager is because I am doing this because I want to do something that I've seen I remember when I learned how to read my dad used to read the Mickey Mouse comics to me hmm. and I was like no I want to read them myself hmm. so I was very eager to learn how to read so I could read myself my own book my own comics and if we can find a way to put an instructional system that specific application if that makes sense Mm -hmm. And you say, well, you know, this is the bridge too. And so a lot of people say, well, I want to be this. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, well, that requires for you to be able to write, for you to be able to do math. And so if we make it with that and we infuse it with practical experiences, then it makes them more interesting. Well, I'm going to go back now and find everything that I can learn about that subject because otherwise I know I cannot reach that goal. So instead of being in a standalone format yep right and the other part that i learned as a teacher is that everybody learns differently and i think one of the best comic strip that i ever seen in my life is a human teacher is standing behind the desk and in front of him he has a crocodile <laughs> a fish in a fishbowl a monkey a parrot on a perch i think a dog and let's say a a turtle a tortoise not a turtle a tortoise right and the comic strip said, the teacher says, right, in order for you to pass today's exam, everyone has to climb that tree behind you. <laughs> yeah. And it was very enlightening, right? Because obviously mm -hmm. we need a methodology in our teaching system. We need to have achievable goals. But in our classrooms, we have tortoises as well as a fish and a ball, as well as the monkey. So the monkey will climb the tree. The fish and the ball will go, well, I can't do that. <laughs> How to standardize that is hard. Yep. I don't envy teachers, right? But that is, I think, one of the things maybe the educational system should look into is that in our classroom, we do have a crocodiles with, you know, a, a tortoise and, and a fish and a ball and a monkey. And not yeah. to call people's names, this is just a physical <laughs> characteristic that can may reflect different learning capabilities. Yeah. And by giving the correct tools mm -hmm. to each student, as you can actually foster like the, the strength rather than the weaknesses. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is have a standard, but standardization is not necessary. So like the objective correct. is to get to the top of the tree, and the way that you do that looks different, right? So a fish Correct. can so still yeah, get to the top of the tree with help, <laughs> maybe a pulley or something, right? But <laughs> also needs help. But I think maybe what you're talking about is a little bit of like, um, like problem-based learning and tapping into students' passions. And then, you know, they're, they're passionate, in your case, about diving. You're passionate about sharks. Okay, what do we need to learn to become a diver and research sharks? What do we need to do? And then you know, then they're motivated by, you know, their interests, which is, which is where the learning happens and they don't even know that they're learning because it's passion driven. I hosted, sorry, I hosted once I remember teenage boy, the parents contacted me. They didn't know me. They ne we never met. They contacted me and said, so can you host my 15 or 16 year old son? I was like, oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> I said, How about we meet first? <laughs> so this 
on the private side, the mom and the father basically gave me these long things of like how the kid was totally disconnected, uninterested, very kind of like lazy, you know, and just had no motivations. And when he came here, I kind of like first let him just be. And then I, I figured out basically he actually had very much a, a brain for like computer stuff. And so every day I was doing something, I was like, ah, can you help me with this? Oh, can you help me install that? Can you help me fix this? And he became extremely engaged into what I was doing, my pose, my video, because I was asking for his technological understanding of like how the district, I remember it was something also with how to, back then, when you did videos, you couldn't just upload it directly on the phone. So you had to go into iCloud to come down back to the phone. And I basically sat there, but because it was video related to the work I was doing, then he became more and more interested. And then we started to go diving. And then he was just absolutely engaged. He will sit on the couch and he will just ask questions. And we start having these long conversations. And by the time he went home, his mom said, well, he's so motivated. He's just starting so much better. And he's so, what have you done? And I'm like, just, well, I just tapped into what was his strength, Mm -hmm. right? Yep to help my weakness to mm-hmm. share together. And yeah. it, it just really showed me, you know, just like sometimes I have made that mistake maybe, you know, through all these teenage kids that I've trained through the years. It's like, oh, it's not motivated. Well, some are not motivated, but is trying to find what is their trigger. And then, like you said, you know, everybody can climb the tree, but differently. Somebody might need, need a ladder. Mm-hmm. Somebody might need a little propeller on the back, you know, to lift them up. But um, maybe that is where the instructional system needs to give the teacher the capability to use the different tools to reach whatever the standard is, rather than standardize which ladder and how the ladder has to be set up on the tree, is tell the teachers, like, listen, this is a tree, it needs to be covered. However, you can use all these different methods. Yep. You know, and it's, it's, it's funny. Um, <clears throat> I was asked to actually build curriculum for, for um, junior high and high school students by, and, and I said, okay, and, and this was, and this is an island over in Honduras. And I said, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to do this, but, but diving is, is, is going to be a part of it. Diving and the, and the ocean is, is going to be the focus from grades um, six through 12. And he said, go for it. Um, so I'm ready. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, so if you, if you know any, you know, anyone with, with in the, in the ministry of education there, um, that's always been a huge goal of mine um, and dream is, is to actually get kids from grade six and say, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to start with um, open water certification, but we're also going to teach you physics, chemistry, biology, blah, 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 all, all centered around diving. Well, that's Uh, what we had here pre Dorian and pre COVID. Um, We had the local high school with a school teacher that I trained scuba diving. And then he implemented into marine science and they were doing 10th, 11th and 12th grade. And then we'll do everything that was related with marine science. So like um, even fish ID, physics, physiology. And in 10th grade, they learn how to swim efficiently and do the open water course. 11th grade, they did the advance. And 12th grade, they did the rescue with preparation for the dive master theory. Wow. But then graduated. And either a lot of them in the end were getting like good scholarships because they were doing so good in the class. But like a lot of them then came working with under me. And then they started until they were 18, work in the equipment room, take out the snorkel, learn how to talk to people, hmm. doing basic briefings, helping people wearing gear. And as soon as they turned 18, I would do personally their dive master and instructor training. Wow. That's so, so cool. It was like a really, yeah, in-house training. And unfortunately, first Hurricane Dorian, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now COVID. So I don't know when we come out at the other end of the spectrum, how it's yeah. going to happen. Because obviously every year it would fuel itself, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th yeah. grade. And, you know, that bit now has had like two years break. Mm. And the teacher is uh, retired. So mm. um, the replacement that was supposed to replace him because of all these events basically also um, 
fell through because our, our university also shut down due to flooding and wow. it was gone for almost a year so it's been it's been difficult we'll see how to reinstitute if we can reinstitute this so well i'm sure there's it's a demand for it mental so. effort. yeah hmm? i said i'm sure there's it's still a demand for it so i would think that it should be able to pick back up once things get, go back to a little yeah. bit more normal maybe but it is a huge financial investment so mm-hmm. also you know the support of the dive operator which is not working right sure. now you know to take out six to eight kids three yep. times a week for free with all the gear all the tanks oh, and all yeah. the dead so it's uh yeah the the financial involvement right now is basically not, not yeah. possible before mm. we used to pair the diver the students with the paying divers so the two tank went out the kids went on the boat oh yeah that makes sense and the company still provide the mm-hmm. tanks the gear pool training yep. so we'll see um mm-hmm. i'd say maybe in two to three years we yeah. can resume because it has provided good results yeah We've been talking a lot about your shark encounters, um, your shark research, and so we want to know a little bit about your first encounter with sharks and what you witnessed and learned, and then we want to know what photogametry is. I'm not sure if I'm even saying that correctly, so can you talk about that? Yes. My first shark encounter was on my first open water dive. Your when first dive and a first shark encounter. That's actually pretty mm-hmm. lucky. I want to become certified. I came here in the Bahamas on the open water dive. We went out and the sharks were there. There was a, a gentleman called Ben Rose who wow. was uh, then became my mentor. And he had just started doing the shark interactive dives. It was just in the early stages. But anyway, the Caribbean sharks were there. And I remember jumping in the water as an open water student. So, you have sharks? And... For the people here, it was like, yeah, of course we have sharks. Almost like, what a dumb question. Because, again, they they didn't realize the absolute privilege to jump in the water and just have sharks Mm. swim around you on any dive. So that was the trigger. After my four certification dives, it's like, oh, you have sharks. I could come back here and dive and be in the water with sharks. The other most beautiful encounter, when, when I started being trained by Ben... Uh, with the interactive dives was when the first shark decided to lay herself in my lap. And it was like oh. a training dive uh, number three. I was really working with the sharks, but I couldn't understand why I couldn't create this connection. I was so eager to connect with these animals. And I didn't realize it's like everything, right? This says if you love someone, set them free. Mm-hmm. And the moment I dropped this high expectation and this high demand, oh, I, want, I want to pet this shark. <laughs> the shark just came into my lap and relaxed. And naturally, sharks sink, sink to the bottom when they stop swimming. They don't have a swimming bladder, so they can't float. Okay. And so we lay there on the ocean floor as I was stroking her, and I can feel her pumping water through her gills. It's called buccal pumping. Hmm. So they can actually ventilate, breathe, quote mm-hmm. unquote, they don't really breathe, they ventilate by opening and closing their jaws and pumping water through their gills. And I could feel her weight. And oh. I could feel this movement, this gentle uh, movement. I think that was the, the moment, hmm. the most beautiful moment. Um, the moment I really, really fell in love with sharks. So what kind of shark and like how big are we talking? Because I, you know, like I feel like I'm like most people, I have a healthy fear of them. Um, although I, you know, I did see one on one of my dives, a reef shark. So it was small and I, you know, felt safe. But, you know, Jaws, I think, created this unrealistic fear of sharks. But maybe maybe you could help us feel a little more the safe. Fear talking about respect. <laughs> Sure. We're talking about Caribbean reef sharks. We're okay. talking about mm-hmm. an eight, nearly nine foot long female. That's big. But then we're going, we're talking about Jaws. And here's yeah. my two cents on Jaws. Okay. At the end of the day, Jaws was a novel by Peter Benchley and the movie by, uh, who was it? I can't remember. Um, was it Steven Spielberg? Steven Spielberg, yes. That guy. You know, it's not that famous. <laughs> Some guy. Spielberg. Sorry, um, Stephen. Just in case you're I listening. I apologize, Mr. Spielberg. But at the end of the day, neither of them said, this is a scientific book and this is a documentary. They said, this is a novel, this is a movie out of Hollywood. So, yes, Jaws, I think, in itself, 
cannot really be blamed. The only thing that Jaws did really well is tap into the animal fear that is within us. That concept of the unknown, more than to be eaten alive, I think most of the movie Jaws, I think, is really, really scary because we never really see the shark. Mm. We just feel it. They mm. just trigger that presence. And so is the unknown and the part that we can't control. As humans, we have this habit of we control our environment. We're masters of our environment. We can actually warm up by creating homes made of ice. Hmm. Mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. But we can't control the ocean, and we can't control anything that is in the ocean. And we can survive in the ocean with a little bit of technology. If we were to be dropped, you know, like as we came out of Mama's into the ocean, we would have very, very, very minimal survival rate. We can't see. We can't breathe in the, in the water after we come out, right? Mm -hmm. We can breathe when we're in the, in, the, in the womb, but as soon as we come out, we become air breathers. We have no thermal protection. We have no swimming capabilities, nothing. I mean, we move as slow as a conch, if not slower. There's <laughs> nothing in the environment itself that we can use it to our advantage. I can't say, oh, I'm stranded here. I'm just going to huddle underneath a coral head and spend the night. Right. No, I'm just going to be floating, hopeless out there and literally most likely die of hypo hypothermia even in the most temperature waters. So Jaws brought up this entire lack of control that we have over our environment and the fear of the unknown. Unfortunately with that, and we still had negative thing, is then people start associating the word shark with just this picture. Yeah. And so here I take the opportunity of a little bit of education. When we say sharks, it's like saying birds. Mm -hmm. If I said all birds are black, nest on the trees and fly, you'd be like, you don't have to be an ornithologist to go, no, <laughs> there are birds that nest on the ground, there are birds that don't fly, and there are birds that actually definitely are not black, but are super colorful. And so mm -hmm. is the sharks. There's the sharks that are as small as a pen. The smallest mm -hmm. shark in the world is the size of a pen. It's called the lantern or known as a dwarf shark. The biggest shark in the world is a plankton eater, is a whale shark, and followed with the basking shark, right? So we're talking about filter feeders. And in between, there are few species, maybe less than a dozen, that are potentially harmless to humans just because of their size. And in the case of a few species, which I would say two or three, because they prey within a range of animals that are similar to humans when we are on the surface or in the water. So what we need to do as divers, well, as people, not as divers, and understand, one, where these sharks live, Two, how they function, and three, how not to put myself into that position. But ultimately, being in the water with sharks, I think, is one of the safest activities that we could ever do. Be very tolerant of our presence. Hmm. Be very accepting of humans in their territory. Uh, if people knew how many times they're in the water and sharks would swim by them and absolutely ignore them, I think they would be <laughs> absolutely astounded by yeah. that. And so just... Learn to accept them a little bit more as they accept us. Hmm. Uh, before you join, we were having a conversation on the concept that people think that as soon as the, you hit the water, there will be sharks, you know, <laughs> ready to bite and snap in jaws. And I talked about, no, they're animals. They're not monsters. Yeah. And they'll work on what is called a return on investment. So they're animals that will take in consideration two main things is, is this effort worth it? Hmm. Right? You're a doctor. So when you went for your PhD, you had to carefully consider, is this effort worth it? <laughs> and somebody says, well, no, you're going to study all these years and you're going to beat up by all these people and have all these people reject all these things and do all this lab, but sorry, you're not going to get your doctorate. Good for you. You just have seven years more of education. You might go... <sighs> Right. I'm not sure, is it worth the return on investment, mm -hmm. right? We'll give you a plaque or something, <laughs> but no time. And the other one is, is it safe for me? Because I'm an animal, so whatever, when we cross the road, we go, we look right, we look left. When I say you look left, we look right. And it's the same thing for an animal. Before they go to hunt about something, they go, is this going to be safe for me? Mm. And they do the thing not with everything. So it's not as soon as they see something moving, shine and sparkly, they'll go after it. Because of those two conditions, they can't keep going. So they're actually very cautious. Hmm. They're very careful. And the encounters, the negative encounters between humans and men are there, but they're 
don't get me wrong, for whatever person that is bitten and has lost a member or life is terrible. Yeah. But if we compare numbers is like absolutely minuscule. Yeah. And it doesn't go the other way around because when sharks meet humans, they meet a terrible fate. Mm. We slaughter them on an estimated average between numbers can vary, but between 70 to 100 millions a year. Wow. We cut their fins off and put them back in the water, just keeping the fins for a pressure shark fin soup used as a delicacy, leaving the sharks to bleed to death or suffocate to death, depending on the species. Wow. They are caught by bycatch, so they are landed on the deck of the boat where something else is selected and left there to suffocate and then tossed in the water as a dead weight. So hmm. the negative encounters of sharks versus humans the sharks definitely lose by a hundred millions versus you know four or five humans per year Mm. wow um one of the one of the other things that you that you do which which maybe a lot of our listeners may not really may not be aware of is cave diving um you know and 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 Cave cave diving in of it itself is something. It's not it, it's not new, um, but there's but there's um, a lot of technology involved you know, involved with it. Um, can you can you share with us what what cave diving is and why you do it? Yes, so cave diving is uh, I would say the art. I call it the art of going in underground flooded tunnels um, which are basically in eternal darkness Uh, with that obviously we bring in quite a lot of issues we add all the issues of going underwater which like we know requires already the use of gear and technology adapted to go underwater so all the risk related with being underwater but now i'm further underground and then i tend to swim away from what is the openings so the area where i can surface and remove my gear and breathe obviously atmospheric air so cave diving in forms uh, there are people that have been there before us and laid what we call lines, exploratory lines, and the average cave divers, when they go cave diving, they follow the breadcrumbs that other divers as follow. We learn how to navigate the lines or read the lines and do all these safety procedures of being underground, underwater, in eternal darkness, away from uh, instant air availability. And then there's exploration which is at the level of which I am. I'm also an instructor. I teach how to cave dive. Exploration means I go in in places where no one else has ever been before, evaluate the environment, lay the lines for them, the people that will follow, and then apply mm. kind of like a research and all of that. Why cave diving in the beginning? For me, cave diving is the ultimate exploration. Whether you lay the line or not, it's exploration as its best. It's like navigating through a very uncharted territory. I find cave diving magical. I try to describe cave diving to people as uh, I imagine myself in an ancient library. <laughs> My dream is to find myself in one of those ancient libraries that you see in the movies, kind of like, you know, mm. the beauty and the beast. Yes. An ancient library with ladders. I would love yes. my apartment to be that creative, <laughs> just like that. And I imagine to open this enormous, big book Imagine it's like oversized for me. And it's like when I open it, kind of like a little bit of dust comes out. Like, poof. And it's a live geology book. So as you swim through the tunnels, and obviously I had to learn a geology and I had to go and read about it. But now I, I swim through the tunnels and I can feel how the cave formed. I can feel the water flowing. I can hear the dripping. I can, uh, you know, realize the ebbs and flows of the ice age as the water rose and the water descended. And then I see something like, and how did that happen? So for me, cave diving is the ultimate exploration, not only in finding uncharted territory, which this year we did uh, really, really well with my partner. We actually found two new cave system and laid over 40,000 feet of Whoa. new lines it means two places nobody had ever been before so for cool. us so there's that part but then is the part is as i swim through these tunnels is what can i learn from that and what happened here 
Mm. And then comes into furthermore, especially after Dorian for me was like, wow, what happened to the water that came over the island and flooded over 70% on the island? It had to go through these holes. And I see yeah. the results of it because the sediment in this cave is gone. And this rock in this cave actually collapsed. And somebody told me that the water level changed 30 feet, 10 meters wow. during the hurricane, from the hurricane pressure. And so you have this kind of discovery. But then furthermore, when we go back to why cave diving for me now is uh, as I cave dive, I start finding that caves are connected to human activity. Uh, a famous cave explorer, Jill Heiner, she calls them the veins of Mother Earth. And I think is a very apt description for the simple fact that uh, the caves are the uh, kind of like the biological reflection of the body. So imagine yourself, right? If you are a healthy person and exercise and eat your fruits and veggies <laughs> and moderate fats, you end up having a certain kind of figure and a certain kind of cholesterol level, diabetic level, and sugar level, let's call it, and heart conditions, right? But if all of a sudden you start just eating uh, fried, fatty food, uh, full of grease, uh, lots of saturated things, when you go to the doctor, you might find that your cholesterol, your diabetes, and your heart conditions are uh, in an unhealthy situation. So transfer that to the caves, these veins of Mother Earth. Well, as humans have this possession over the Earth, and so now we modify the terrain. So we may uh, change the conditions over the cave on the, on the land. We may change the ocean conditions at the estuary of the cave or in the mangroves. We may pollute. So we feed this planet with fatty food, high cholesterol, uh, lots of sugars, right? Which are the mm. pollutants, let's call it like that. The veins that I swim through will show me exactly the health level of that body. Hmm. So in a certain way for me, cave diving has become like I'm this doctor that can actually miniaturize herself and actually go through the planet and see the consequences of our actions into the planet. And, and so that to me, cave diving became very important. I'll, I still have the satisfaction, the desire for exploration. But all of a sudden it's like, hey, wait a minute. I said, if you do something here, look what happens. It transfers here and then it goes here and actually affects this. And as in the Bahamas, the caves are connected between the North Shore and the South Shore and the mangroves. And in the mangroves, we have the nursery grounds for fish, for corals, for sharks. I can pollute 10 miles away, but if it's connected to the mangroves, that pollution will travel. And I will have a diseased cave, but I will also have diseased island that will show the effect of that cholesterol, diabetes, heart conditions. Wow, that's actually that's a really good connection, dive. a really good analogy to that. I like that. Um, so that's why I cave dive. I want to bring up the beauty of them. Mm -hmm. I want to bring up what they really represent, but also want to highlight how important they are into the balance of all these ecosystems. Yeah. Speaking of which, we didn't explain what photogrammetry is. No, we didn't. Yeah, can you? <laughs> so photogrammetry is uh, was... Uh, it's a, there's different kind of photogrammetries, right? You'll find photogrammetries used in different contexts, but for sharks, photogrammetry is used to measure them. And it's a system that was created by Dr. Miki Mekamkabza, super easy and super cheap, which is hmm. what we want. We want to have a democratization of science. We want science to be accessible to people through low costs, right? So that we can actually spread it yeah. to more people and they can use it. So it's a little GoPro <laughs> mounted on PVC pipes with two little laser beams. The one that you use to do a presentation. They're underwater laser beams. You at uh. home, you calibrate them 25 centimeters apart. Mm -hmm. And then you go out in the ocean and you film the sharks as they swim, swim by, making sure that they are within the frame of the camera. So you have to have the nose and the tip of the tail. And as you do that with the lasers on, you make sure that the two dots are lined along the side of the shark. doesn't matter exactly where. They can be more towards the eye, more towards the body, more towards the tail. But as long as you have the whole body in the video and the two laser uh, horizontal, when you go home, you review your footage, 
you take a screenshot and then through a chart a doctor comes uh, basically provided us you can actually measure right you have to 25 centimeters you can measure the thrust of the shards the full length of the shark um, uh, by that monitor their growth monitor their health for example caribbean reef sharks become sexually mature by size not by age wow. some sharks do by age you, see, you can actually monitor how these sharks thrive and grow and it becomes like a database which is right now what we miss in the ocean that says the photogrammetry that i'm doing it's kind of like a lot of fun um the mm. laser actually attract the yellow tails it's really funny when you're if a shark swim by and you've done your videos you can actually put the laser in the stand mm -hmm. and the yellow tails will play with it like a cat plays with the laser <laughs> they'll try that's to cool. choose the little green dot <laughs> oh my gosh that's funny that's awesome yeah it is cute and so, anyone can do it. It's a perfect citizen science, right? All you mm. need to do is to teach someone how to, it takes a little bit of practice. You know, people fumble in the beginning, but imagine, you know, having people involved in trying to correct. measure sharks with non-invasive procedures. You right. can just swim in by the sharks and trying to video and keep the two dots mm -hmm. and puts in diving skills. You have to have good buoyancy. You can now use your hands to faff about. Yeah. You know, and, and on top of that, you collect data. Cool. Wow. I like that. Yeah, that might be on my next. I can hear your brain working. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> um, so, so, so briefly, tell us about your non nonprofit. Uh, the People of the Waters, a nonprofit I founded in January two thousand nineteen, under suggestions and some uh, wonderful supporters and friends, who saw quite a lot of this work that I've been mentioning, like the cave exploration, the mapping, and a lot of things that we also did in Prague has always been self-financed. So I work as a diving professional, and then I invest quite a lot of my own money and my own time into acquiring the gear and then going and doing these jobs, uh, doing the educational part. That, that sounds is, familiar. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I spend all the money to become a course director so then I can train the people to become instructors. And he said, well, if you found a non-profit and it's pe uh, people off the water, it might help you at least with some of these uh expensive tools that you're using in initially and hopefully in the future you know just uh, become part of uh, the work i do so that's the reason why i was founded is to allow me at first to expand the exploration and conservation reach uh, and then expand it into the education ultimately i would love to see it into being able to have uh, scholarships and internships involved and mm. actually I'll go back to what we were doing for, through the nonprofit of maybe um, training a more limited number, but like maybe like more focus of Bahamians at first. Yeah. Right. And then being able to do that. Right now is the two of us, uh, Kevin Lorenz and myself, involved physically in the, in, in the nonprofit. So all the work we do, it's all, uh, all of our own, you know, time and efforts and uh, absolute passion. So hopefully in the future, also expand the team uh, from a physical point of view. Awesome. And people have been helpful. So they can donate is a, a C5013. So it's actually a, a US registered mm. tax deductible. And the money right now literally goes uh, just into helping us acquire the tools to continue to do these yeah. jobs. How can they donate to you if they want to? It's on the People of the Water website. So pow.nonprofit.org. When I uh, log on it, then there is the donate page. Okay. Can donate. Awesome. I'm in the process of changing, hopefully, to have a little bit more efficient. I've been having some issues. So. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yes. Good. Well, as we um, sum up, and, you know, we could probably talk for hours, and this has been so very interesting, so thank you. But... We like to ask our guests what their call to action is, and that's just um, maybe if people just took one thing away from you, um, what would you like to say is your call to action? My call to action is called the star thrower and is understanding the power of one. Yeah. is uh, It's very difficult sometimes to look at our world and the things that we're trying to do and feel that we're making a difference. But it, I do believe that each one of us can make a difference. So think globally, act locally. That <laughs> is my call to action. And understand that you as an individual can make a difference through what 
you're doing, but also through inspiring others that want to come and join you. The story is associated with the kid that is on the beach and throwing the starfish into the water. And an old man approaches him and says, what are you doing? And the kid said, well, the starfish is stranded. I'm going to put them back in the water. And the old man says, well, there's thousands of starfish for miles and miles. You will never make a difference. And the kid stops, ponders this sentence, and then picks up another starfish, puts it in the water, and says, well, I made a difference for that one. Yeah. And so that is the call to action is think globally, act locally. Do not become discouraged by looking at everything that goes wrong, but think about that one thing that you can do mm. as an individual to start making things go right. And it can be as simple as every time you go for a walk, pick up 100 feet of garbage along the way yeah. and dispose of them correctly. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That. That's a perfect thing to end on. <laughs> uh, Christina thank you so much for your time today thanks for your work with sharks thanks for helping me feel safer with sharks um, and just for all the work that you do we really appreciate having you on today Christina thank you so very much it is my pleasure thank you so much and just one last word if people have questions I always answer all the messages they okay. can always reach me through my website awesome which is christina zanato christina without an h c-r-i-s-t-i-n-a-z-e-n-a-t-o they go on the website click on the contact button send me a message if you have questions about sharks or about caves or you have fears or training anyone is more than welcome to reach out to me and i'm more than happy to answer those questions i love that my sister and my nephew are infatuated with the sharks so i think you might hear from them so <laughs> thank you christina thank you thank you so much bye, bye. bye.